0: With 80-plus episodes in the vault and more than $3 billion in total compensation increases received by the Secrets Village, KP and PR are still dropping jewels. Secrets continues to validate that you are not crazy with the challenges faced in trying to reach and exceed your career aspirations. A listener describes Secrets as helping to pinpoint areas I need to develop in conversations I never knew I needed to hear. And season five will definitely not disappoint as they continue to deliver secrets on how to advocate for yourself, how to become a better ally, and how to increase your market value by building generational wealth. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, have paid their dues to reach the top of corporate America, and they want to share their stories with you to transform your journey. And this groundbreaking podcast challenges you, as well as corporate America, to be better and do better. KP and PR will bring you more tips and tricks on how to advance your career so fill up those cups and welcome to season five hey
1: everybody welcome to secrets ricky what's going on today my brother
2: man i am so excited about today's episode we have had a lot of great moments and great guests you know on secrets and every once in a while we we get a real trailblazer on the show, like a bona fide boss on the show, right? And Secrets Village today is one of them days, right? We are going to bring you just someone that we've looked up to, a superstar here, and I guarantee after you hear this, you'll probably feel the same way. We have Carlton Guthrie joining us today, and he is a true, true business icon.
1: Yeah, I agree, and you know, many of y'all may not have heard of Mr. Guthrie, but you'll know him after this show is done. Believe, believe. but let me introduce you, give you an introduction to uh, Mr. Carlton Guthrie. Carlton is the co-chair and president of Detroit Chassis and its parent company Spectra LLC. And Carlton and his brother Michael are the sole shareholders of Spectra, which includes a majority interest in several automotive-related businesses, including Detroit Chassis an assembler of the Ford F53 motorhome and the Ford F59, the commercial trucks that Ford does. They also own Detroit Custom Chassis, which provides chassis modifications, and then Magnus, which is a process and manufacturing engineering firm. Carlton is also the chairman of the board for HealthCure. He has a BA in economics and an MBA from Harvard, and his corporate career includes stints at Philadelphia National Bank, Procter & Gamble, jewel companies, McKenzie and Company, and James uh, Lowry and Associates, which was a multi-office management consulting firm, where he departed as Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer before venturing out to start these great ventures that we just talked about. And Carlton and his brother have numerous industry accolades. He's served and led numerous and countless industry boards and he generously gives back to the community. So we are so proud and excited to have Carlton Guthrie with us today. Welcome
3: to the show, Carlton. How are you doing? Thank you. Doing great. Doing great. Glad to be uh, in the presence of such uh, outstanding talent here on the other end, too. I read a you guys. You got a kick butt, too. <laughs> hey, we appreciate it. Hey, listeners, that just
2: means that our check cashed, okay? <laughs> but look, Carlton, we are just elated that you're on the show today, man. And, and we we know that people are going to just love the story you know, that you tell here in terms of your background. So in today's episode, everyone, we will talk to Carlton about his story and his career journey. We'll delve into what it was like as a first generation Black corporate leader and uh, his decision to venture out on his own. We'll also provide some receipts on Black corporate trailblazers. And then finally, we'll close out with secrets from Carlton on how to believe in yourself and to follow your passions.
1: This is going to be a good one today, y'all. So, Carlton, I'll start out with the first question. And we always like to start out by just giving our listeners a sense of who you are, kind of where you come from, how you grew up, and give us kind of a little bit of background about your career. So could you just start by where'd you grow up, how'd you grow up, a little bit of your career journey for our listeners here?
3: Okay. Well, I started with my parents. Both of them were first-generation college students, growing up in Lithonia, Georgia. Both uh, children of sharecropping families. My dad's family was probably the most sought-after sharecropping family in Fulton County. Fourteen strapping boys and girls, and um, everybody wanted them. My mom's family also were sharecroppers, and they both became the first in their families to move away from sharecropping existence. And my dad actually uh, was driven out by the Klan. He had uh, gone to Clark, and both my mothers at Clark also, and he started getting involved in voter registration. And he came back to Lithonia talking voter registration. Well, Lithonia, Georgia is in the shadow of Stone Mountain where the Ku Klux Klan was founded. The Klan used to march down Blue Street in the hood to go to their conclaves. And when they found out he was doing voter registration, word came back that they were coming that night to take care of him. My dad put him in the trunk of a car, shipped him out of town, shipped him to Detroit. He ended up in Chicago and then brought the family up after that. It was fortuitous in in many ways because he broke the mold, settled in Chicago and raised uh, five kids In seven years of the five kids. Four of us were either the valedictorians or salutatorians of our high school class coming out of Gary, Indiana. So that was the the genesis. And from Gary, um, I went to Harvard and my brother was also at Harvard. Harvard and Howard are the two family schools. Uh, I have a sister and a brother who also went to Howard. Both my kids went to Howard. I got a bunch of folks, uh, graduates of Howard. And I loved Howard too. used to go down there and party when I was at Harvard. I mean, you want a good party, you go to Howard. Harvard was quite an experience. And it certainly gave me a perspective that allowed me to broaden my horizons. You talk about the only black folks. Well, there were a few black folks at Harvard, but not a whole hell of a lot. And I learned early on that being the only is, it can be quite an advantage if you play it that way. And that's how I viewed it all my life. When I walk into a room, heads turn because I'm a tall black man. Success number one, I got their attention. Okay, when you open your mouth, that's when you got to produce. But it's your <laughs> attention. So I've used that to my advantage uh, over the years. I, I tell folks, I've been in scenarios where I've laid it on the line to folks. I can be your brother from Harvard. I can be one of the boys in the hood. You pick which one you want to deal with. They invariably picked a brother from Harvard, okay? So you got to use what you got to get what you want. And I made a practice of that throughout my career. So my career was a progression focusing on two things, what I was good at and what I enjoyed doing. So uh, coming out of high school, I was um, a math whiz. I I pretty much exhausted all of the math the school system had to offer by my junior year. And I started taking college courses while I was still in high school and uh, tested into a high-level math class at Harvard. So, walk in freshman year cocky as heck all right who's dog meat here i walk around look around see who's there and it's me and there's 20 asians so hmm okay not a problem i sit down professor walks in professor's asian hmm okay get a little nervous class starts guy asks a question his english is not very good so he asked it in mandarin chinese and the professor responded in mandarin chinese and then a couple other people chimed in. I said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. No complaint though. No. Don't speak. No. Oh, sorry, Mr. Duffy. very sorry. I got the hell out of there. OK, being good at math is great, but numbers with dollar signs mean a whole lot more. So I switched to economics. <laughs> and that was a very important lesson for me. You know, if you're running into a scenario and you can project that it's going to be a difficult sledding, don't keep going down that path. Back up, move over, and bang, take off. And economics for me was great. Went to work at a bank in Philadelphia because I want to understand money and how money flows. I saw a lot of money at Harvard. I didn't have a lot of money. Got to Philadelphia National Bank, tested number one in the credit class. Got to pick which area the bank I wanted. I picked real estate. Okay, So I'm the credit analyst analyzing deals. A deal comes, and it's a bunch of crap. I tell my manager that. He says, no, let's go listen to it. We go, we sit down, and the guy walks in, GQ down, you know, best everything. Every question we asked, he had the right answer. He walked out with $30 million loan. I got out of banking and went into sales. Okay. Because I figured that's the kind of skill I need to have. So my whole career was a progression of stops where I went to companies to get specific talents and skills. Culminating in management consulting, which I thought was the field, working at McKinsey. And then uh, Jim Lowry, which was the first black guy ever hired by McKinsey, he started his own consulting firm. And then brought myself and Bob Holland, first black partner McKinsey, into the firm to create a mega black consulting firm. Offices in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, blue chip clients, American Express, Time Life, Burger King, Bank of America, bang, we were rolling. And then you've heard the story, who who moved the cheese? I was chief operating officer, supposed to be potentially an owner, but I figured out once again, that that direction wasn't going to work for me, pivoted bought a business. So 1985, decided that uh, that was the direction my brother and I left, bought a stamping company in uh, Lansing, Michigan, put up 200000 raised $13 dreamy Extremely leveraged buyout. Three weeks after you bought the company, General Motors pulled two-thirds of the work out of the business and gave it to another supplier. We were literally bankrupt three weeks after you bought the business. Now, I'm still here, okay? I mean, that doesn't kill you, make you stronger. Well, I should have been dead a long time ago. I've had a lot of scenarios like that. And I don't want to get into all of them because it'd be depressing me to even think about them again because it's been so long. But continually, I've been focusing on what I'm good at and what I enjoy doing and making sure I keep moving in that direction. And as soon as I see something that may be an impediment or a roadblock, I stop, figure it out, and typically I pivot, and I start running in another direction that gets me where I want to go. Woo! Man, look. Carlton, brother, I
2: mean, we just salute you because like the story that you talk about in terms of, and this is something that we, that we talk to our secrets listeners about is, and we we refer to them as glass cliff opportunities. When you get, it looked good before you got in there and then you get in there and you realize you don't have resources or the company's going in a different direction, or there's some other impediments like there's knowledge or relationships that you're just not going to, there's no way to, that I can make myself have less melanin than I already have. (laughs) You know, like I can't make myself be from somewhere where I'm not, you know, so to speak. So the fact that you had the courage to get out of some of those glass cliff opportunities, the deliberate movement that you made in your corporate career, like all of those things are noteworthy in why we call you, you know, a trailblazer. But I, I have another question here, and especially as I'm thinking through all of the brothers and sisters that went to Harvard to kind of pave the way for others to be able to go there. You, your brother Reginald Lewis, like a lot of these cats came through there and really just pushed the envelope. When I think about, you know, at the time that you were growing up, Gary Indiana, you know, like that time was popping. I mean, you had like the Jacksons and so many other. The high achievers, you know, coming out of Gary, what was it like being around so much Black excellence growing up? I mean, all the things that you talk about, you know, I see the foundation there, but talk a little bit more about what it was like even growing up in a Gary, Indiana area.
3: Well, Gary is a very unique situation. It's a predominantly Black town and it transitioned from a white mayor to a Black mayor, Richard Hatcher, while I was there. So that transition was happening. And it was a very dynamic place. The first National Black Political Convention was held at my high school, Gary Westside, back uh, in 72, I think it was. So it was dynamic in that regard. It was also dynamic from the perspective of having a lot of educators who were outstanding that were teaching in the Gary school system. The Gary school system was noted as being one of the most outstanding school systems in the country back in those days. So it gave us a lift. And so the folks coming out of Gary came out with turbochargers, for the most part, because we had the political acumen, we had the academic acumen, and we also were outstanding athletes. I mean, we had it all rolling on, going on for us. Leaving Gary was the best thing I could have done, though, because Gary is small and somewhat myopic. If you're not from Gary, you're not in Gary, okay? I mean, bottom line is that. So even now, I have an organization called Gary Alumni Pathway to Students that I founded that um, Lisa Bennett and a few other people that you know are members of. And we bring Black folks back to Gary because the kids there now don't have anywhere near the kind of options that we had. As a matter of fact, they've been forgotten and left for dead, many of them. So we created an organization called GAPS to fill those gaps, to bring in alumni and other organizations to provide some of the kind of mentoring, financial assistance, internships, you name it, to help these kids figure out how to navigate and become successful in college career and in life. So the Gary of my day was an exciting time. It was also murder capital of the the United States when I was there. I know uh, at least four convicted murderers and a couple others who probably should have been. It was that kind of place. So it was good to get out of Gary. And now I'm, I'm back
1: that's incredible and it and it's amazing how a lot of these how these cities have had these ebbs and flows over time but created some great people that came out of some of these towns as well and you talked a little bit earlier about kind of being the only and you know as you entered corporate america i mean you're right on the heels of the civil rights movement right as kind of some of the the things like voting rights and affirmative action and desegregation were just starting to kind of get its legs as you're kind of exiting college and entering corporate America and those things. like, Can you just talk a little bit about what it was like as, at that time as kind of a black man trying to navigate your way through, through corporate America? Because I, I know you're the only a lot of the time, if not all of the time.
3: Well, yeah, and I'm a very observant guy. I do a great job of surveying, understanding what's happening, why it's happening, when it's happening, to whom, by whom. And corporate America, to me, was uh, quite an education. What I figured out very quickly was that my future was not in corporate America. Initially, performance is what drives corporate America. So as a young person coming into a scenario, oftentimes you have a lot of opportunities to demonstrate your capabilities. The higher you get up the ladder, the more it becomes political. And if you're not on the right team, which I figured out, you can still be successful. But man, this is going to be quite a slog. A perfect example was um, when I came out of college, I went to work for undergraduate. I went to to work for um, jewel companies, which is a supermarket chain. They also do um, drugstores and big retailer. Chairman of the board was a Harvard B School graduate. And he brought in folks from Harvard every two years and take them through a program to help them become knowledgeable in the business. So I came in with the mentorship of another Harvard Business School graduate and worked my way up through the organization until I got to the point where I was then put under the mentorship of a guy who was a high school graduate from the old country who did not like Black folks, did not like Harvard people, didn't like. So all of my performance came to a head. I mean, he immediately took me and put me in the worst store in the system as store manager. My first store, this place was the nastiest store known to man. And that became my store. Now, fortunately, I figured out how to turn that store around in six weeks. The president of the company came to that store on a Saturday morning with his staff to witness for himself the transformation that had happened in that store. Turns out his mama from the old country shopped at that store. And the reason the store was still in existence because she shopped at that store. She had been closed a long time ago. And I came in and made friends with his mom and we cleaned that store up. So at that point, I had a real target on my back from that guy. It was time to go. That's the scenario that you often see in corporate America. If you're not on the right team, you got no chance. Again, I'm the kind of guy that makes decisions pretty quickly in the process. You know, I don't like to wait until I got my head bashed before I say, oh, I shouldn't have gone there. I got out and moved into management consulting from that point. So I would say that a key lesson there as you evolve your career, look for organizations that will invest in you. Look for organizations that will give you an opportunity to spread your wings early in terms of getting expertise, experience, management exposure, problem solving, turnarounds, get that early. Because later on, your capabilities won't necessarily be the determinant of your direction in that organization. It's more so the relationships, and you need to build those relationships. Some people are very good at that. I'm not. Okay. I choose not to be. Let's put it that way. I choose to be either the brother from Harvard or one of the boys from the hood. And sometimes that hood comes out. It doesn't work too well high up in corporate America. And that was partly my rationale for deciding to become an entrepreneur. I saw that that ceiling was going to get me. And there's no reason for me to stick around if I see potentially my upside limited because the fact is way beyond my control. Ah, oh my God, this is
2: like just golden, <laughs> you know, Yeah, right? Because a lot of the things that you speak about in terms of keeping your head on the swivel in terms of what team are you on, what impact are you trying to make, you know, some of those types of things are extremely important. We talk about that in, 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 in Secrets, you know, all of the time. And what I'm interested in is, you know, as you just mentioned, you've had like some trials and tribulations here, right? And we've all kind of grown up in crazy situations. And if not for the grace of God, we probably wouldn't be here today, right? I mean, there's a fork in the road where you can make a left or a right or conversations that people have with you that shape your career. Like I'll often think about when I sat down with my high school guidance counselor, when they should be telling people to, hey, go to college, get ready to take the SATs, the uh, the ACTs. I remember my high school guidance counselor telling me, hey, Ricky, college isn't for everybody. You should think about joining the military. Now, that definitely wasn't on my mind, <laughs> you know, at that point. But I always think about people trying to get you to quit or trying to make you be what they want you to be. Can you speak to like an example or two or maybe even a comment or a conversation that you had with someone? that has stayed with you over the decades either positive or negative
3: you know for us can you maybe share one of those with us well i guess there have been a there have been a couple one was from bob holland bob holland was first black partner at McKinsey. he was also the black ceo for ben and jerry's ice cream that's how a lot of people came to know him but to me he was my mentor when we both left McKinsey to go work with jim lowry to create a mega consulting firm he became the project director, and I was the project manager on several projects, and he would fly in to Detroit or wherever as I'm working on a project. We'd go to a bar, and he would just drop pearls of wisdom. Surreptitiously, I had a little small tape recorder, which I kept in my pocket and turned on because I couldn't retain all the stuff. He had a lot of good stuff. One of the things that stuck with me was a very simple statement that resonated. Each one, teach one. Very simple, each one teach one. Come on now. That is what I live by, okay? And my goal is to each one teach many, okay? I'm taking that and scaling it. That's my interpretation of what he meant, was scaling that. The only way that a lot of folks today will survive is that someone takes an interest in them and starts educating them and giving them the opportunity to benefit from the wisdom that they've accumulated all over the years. And that's what I do. I, I have an organization uh, that I was chair of for several years in Chicago called Concerned Christian Men. We've mentored 40,000 black boys, fourth grade through eighth grade, over the last 20-something years. And those boys who come to our program were different. We know because the principals came back and said, look, we know you guys are doing that on Saturdays. We want you to do your program in our schools during the school day. OK, that's the impact that each one teach many. To me, it's it's a light that just shines that I constantly think about. How can I translate these learnings that I have into young folks? I would like to do it to older folks, but older folks are hard to teach. Okay, the older you get, the harder it is for you to retain, understand, transform. Young kids, however, the light goes on, and you can actually see the light going on in young kids oftentimes as they figure out, wow, I can do that. So that's what drives me. Being able to translate the lessons that uh, allowed me to get to where I am, repackaging them and putting them in small bites, so that kids can start nibbling on those and develop an appetite for a lot of the things that they need to know in order to be successful.
2: Yeah. No. I, look, I love that each one teach many, and I think that it's easy for someone to. Well, it was not easy for someone to make it, but when they do make it, it's easy for them to hold on to the information or maybe just whisper it to one person, but to be able to tell it to the masses, you know, as you've been doing throughout your career is golden. You know, again, I think that's a testament to your upbringing, but also something for all of us to kind of live up to.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And obviously, you know, you you've shared a few stories about your career and how in corporate America, you kind of hit that glass ceiling, you had some glass cliff opportunities, and you had the foresight to say, this ain't for me. And you decided to make that pivot and kind of bet on yourself. So how did you get to that moment of preparing yourself to make that pivot? And you and your brother saying, we're going to buy a business. And I know a lot of our people, we're very entrepreneurial, and we want to step out there and get our feet wet. But obviously you had a little bit of a plan and you also had some means to be able to really get out there and do it right so that you didn't put yourself in a further predicament just because you're in a situation that you didn't like. So can you just talk about some of the thinking behind uh, making that decision?
3: Okay. well, again, as I mentioned earlier, being an entrepreneur was not on my radar screen early on. It was developing skills, doing what I enjoy doing. Also understand what I'm not good at and don't enjoy doing and making sure I don't get stuck in, that, in those areas. But through that process, I developed a lot of skills. One of them was the ability to assess potential acquisitions while working at McKinsey & Company. So as I went through this process of figuring out what I enjoyed doing, I thought I was at the pinnacle in terms of being in consulting, problem solving, which I love doing. Management consulting, love it. General management, Great. And then the cheese moved. And that's when the decision came to buy a business. But I approached it very differently than most folks would. I put together an acquisition screen, which listed 13 characteristics of the company that I wanted to buy. I wanted $10 million in sales or greater. Anything smaller than that, you can't get anybody interested. I was looking for hard assets because I knew I was gonna do a leverage buyout. I was looking for low technology as opposed to high technology because I didn't have the skills to manage high tech. And I figured I had a lot of skills that could manage low to moderate technology. I was looking for industries in transition, where the rules for success are changing. Deregulation, for example. Southwest Airlines coming in. I mean, there are a bunch of scenarios where industries start to evolve and new players come in and eat their lunch. I was looking for an industry with a history of support for minority business development. Wanted to be able to get somebody's attention. And that's hard to do oftentimes as a small company. A lot of minority business development programs give you access that you would not have otherwise. One screen that I blew was I did not want a turnaround situation. Well, I got one. Okay. But it turns out that gave me an opportunity to demonstrate some other skills. So that acquisition screen was a mechanism that got me focused. Plus, I could communicate that to other people that were in the deal stream. So they could see exactly what I was looking for, where my head was at. And immediately I got a lot of folks coming to me with ideas, potential acquisition targets, offers to help. I believe that. You give some to get some. That's my personal mission. You have to give some to get some. Giving you shall receive, return on investment, same thing. You got to put something out to get something back. So the more that I put out, the more I got back in terms of here's some things that we can do to help you do this. Nowadays, people tend to start businesses based on social media platforms and a bunch of other things that not my style. And fortunately, I'm beyond that. That can work and can work well. I know people are making money doing that. But for me, I was looking to have as many skills. I call them bullets in my gun. It's not a good analogy these days, but I wanted to have as many skills as I could have so that once I step into a scenario that is challenging, I've got talents already in the book that I can use to deploy to make sure I'm successful. I'm a risk averse. People think I'm a risky guy. Nah. If I fail, I may break a finger, maybe an arm, but never my neck. Okay. Okay. I take calculated risks. I also have contingency plans. I expect things to fail. And if you expect things to fail, you develop plans in case they fail. Quick example on that, when we bought our first business, I mentioned that we put up 200,000 and raised 13 million. Well, what I didn't tell you was that we had a private equity partner, ex-McKinsey guy, who was working with us to bring in some dollars and a bunch of other folks, and we're supposed to close on Monday, he called on Friday and said, Carlton, uh, now there's been a change in the deal. I said, what are you talking about, Andrew?" Well, uh, instead of 20%, we want 49%. Hmm, okay. We also want to make sure that you put veto here on your board as your managing director. Okay, and then he laid out about four or five different terms three days before we supposed to close. Said, okay, tell you what, Andrew, I'll get back to you. Well, what he didn't know was I kept a shadow deal structure going on the side all the while because I didn't trust it. So over the weekend, we put together a deal. And I called him up on Monday and said, Andrew, F you. Click. Bang. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the kind of stories that happen. I mean, those are the things that happen. They'll take you to the hoop and slam, dunk you if you don't plan on things happening that go different than what you expect. So that's the kind of preparation that I do. And I I overprepare. That's just my nature. Nowadays, a lot of folks don't do that but let me tell you there's value in being over prepared. Yeah,
2: no, look, we really appreciate that because it's no like you taking a chance on yourself and uh, is no different than someone trying to leave their their organization and go to another and they have an offer letter and they've already given whatever like they've given a notice and in the 11th hour things change. Now you're not going to have the resources you had before or you start with the organization and now all of a sudden they change directions and you left a comfortable situation to go to something volatile. And now you're out on your ass. You know what I'm saying? Like stuff like that happens. So having that contingency plan that you speak about is again, another gem that we appreciate, you know, there. So I have a question for you though. So, you know, our good friend Lisa Bennett, you mentioned her earlier, introduced us to you and she mentioned that the Guthrie family is all amazing. Okay. Like you were already talking about the Howard you know, and Harvard, you know, connection there and your involvement. You have partnered with your brother, uh, Michael, for several decades now. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to build an empire with your brother and to be able to build that generational wealth that we hear about, you know, as Black people, but we don't all often get a chance to experience it.
3: Well, my brother and I are two years and four days apart. We slept in the same bed for much of our formative years, which was torture for me. The guy would have these dreams and I have to fight him off. You
2: know. <laughs> <laughs> I know what it's like. Somebody was taking most of the covers. I understand.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but extremely close. And 30-something years of being a partner, we've only agreed to disagree one time in 30 plus years. And if he feels strongly about something, I says, All right, Mike, let's do it. If I feel strongly, he says the same thing. And one time we agreed to disagree, I was wrong. It was a bad scenario. I didn't have all the information, which is the deal. But having that partnership relationship with someone that I'm that close to is critical, especially if someone's looking to go out and start their own business or whatever, you gotta have somebody who's got your back. In my family, my brother's got my back, as do my wife, kids, brothers, sisters, you name it. Very close-knit family. Just this past week, I have a place in South Haven, Michigan and I have a rental house right next door. Had 30 family members there, including um, kids, nephews, nieces, grandkids, there were eight kids, five years old and under. We do this kind of thing all the time. Also, we've created a Guthrie Family Scholarship Foundation, where we provide scholarships, and not just scholarships, it's mentorships also to graduating students from Gary Westside High School, as well as South Haven High School, where I have a place now. I'll be having lunch with those guys on Friday, introducing them to other people in the community who can help them be successful. So the family unit that we have is extremely strong, extremely diverse, and very talented. I've got nephews and nieces doing some incredible things, and everybody looks to give back. Everybody follows that model that we established early on—that our parents initially said, "Give and you shall receive." I heard that so many times; I validated it. It works. You know, you give and you get. You know, so that family model has worked extremely well, and I think that's going to. Continue to provide benefits to generations to come. At the same time, my goal is to pass on as much as I can in terms of that lore. However, I'm also taking ski trips, ski stands for spending the kids' inheritance. Okay, so I'm gonna pass on some, you know, but you got to go. You got to go. Gonna, and I don't want to leave a lot on the table. You know what I'm saying? So um,
2: it's funny that you said that. I was just having a conversation with my nephew the other day. He's like oh, I sure hope this you you uh, you I get this car when you leave, and I'm like, wait, get this car. I said, brother, let me explain something to you. By the time old oh, man Robinson is gone, half this shit is gonna be gone with me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wanna spend as much as I can.
3: Yeah, well, it's been a um, I think very rewarding to see family members who are capable and committed. Oftentimes, you don't see that in families, but we we clearly have a group that does that and. And I'm the guy that pulls them all together. I give uh, a party every, uh, it used to be every year, got to be too big, called Summer Thang. Not thing, okay, it's Summer Thang, it's a thing. Yeah, yeah, we got that A in there, right. we heard it. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> and family comes, but also the extended family comes. For like a four-day party, big tournaments, golf tournaments, jazz on the patio, we rock and rolling. Everybody coming together, and at the same time, we give. because I'm still pushing. It's great that you got, but you got to give. So we have a good time as we give, but we make sure we give. Yeah, so so KP and I, we're going to be looking for our invitation. With the, with the, <laughs> that's a dog on short. i right, right, sure. put you guys on the waiting list. <laughs> we'll put, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: We'll bring our checkbook.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so Carlton, you were just talking a little bit about kind of passing down these stories, right? Passing them down a generation so that You know, we all can learn from that. And you recently were actually interviewed and history makers for the uh, African-American Museum in D.C. as they wanted to capture your story and hear what that was about. And that's that's quite an honor to be asked to do that. That just shows the gravitas that you have and, you know, all the accomplishments that you have. So what was what was that experience like for you? And then what did it signal for you signal to your kids and your family and all of those kids that you're helping to support coming out of Gary and other places what was that moment like for you
3: Well it wore my butt out it was rough initially I didn't want to do it uh, but my wife and a couple of people impressed upon me the the legacy issues I had to relive some stories and what you guys heard were just a couple so when I sat down with Juliana Richardson for what was supposed to be a 3-hour conversation Seven hours later, she's excited, pumped, asking. I mean, she was, I mean, she heard, I had never heard stuff like this before. And I'm exhausted, you know, worn out. And so finally, after seven hours, no breaks, no dinner, you know, I'm basically gone and we were done. So I told her, look, I need to come back because there were several things I wanted to talk about that we didn't talk about. I recognize that there's benefit and value to hearing some of these stories. And and actually, we're going to have another session where I'll get an opportunity to provide some insights on a lot of things that are more passionate. So the experience was gut-wrenching for me, just living through a lot of those stories. And everybody asked me, you're going to write a book. Why do I have to now? It's on tape. Merivette, it's right here. I got the tape right here, and I'm refusing to listen to it to tell you the truth. So it's a great thing, and I'm ultimately going to be able to put something together that will allow people to access that information in bits, so that those storylines I can incorporate into Gary Alumni Pathway to Students, Concerned Christian Men, and other organizations so they can take those, those, those short vignettes and work with them. Like I said, it, I was drained. I was drained. Glad I did it, but next time it'll be on my terms, not hers. Hey, that's amazing.
2: I mean, I can't wait to hear it, but so that we don't take too much of your energy, we don't want you to feel drained you know, uh, today from us, right? I have one final question. When you really think about this, it's been so much, you know, uh, that you've been able to accomplish, but what has been one of your proudest career moments and what are you looking forward to as you move into the next
3: stage, you know, in your career? Well, in terms of proudest career moments, I guess I've had a lot of them. There was, there was one in particular that pretty much shaped my life. I was a salesman for Procter & Gamble. I had worked at the bank, as I mentioned, for about 10 months. Figured out I needed to learn how to sell. When that guy came in, I researched to find out the top three companies in the country to teach people how to sell were IBM, Xerox, and Procter and & Gamble. Didn't want technology. I went to P&G, and they hired me as a salesman in South Jersey. P&G, a militaristic organization. They can teach a rock how to sell. A, B, C, D. I mean, bang. So I went to work selling soap in South Jersey. Tide, Cheer, Oxidol, dash Tide, Gain, era Cascade, Soap. And I get, the door slammed in my face several times. I wasn't successful. And my life at that point had been successful. And I started developing a pain in my stomach, which turned out to be an ulcer. And the doctor told me that, hey, there's too much stress in your life right now. You need to relieve that stress. And so I made a monumental decision. I wasn't going to sell the p g way. I was going to sell the Carlton Guthrie way. So that decision manifested itself in a large account that was in South Jersey that had three stores, each of them a million dollars a week, huge stores, did no Procter & Gamble deals. You know, 50 cent off, 30, no Procter & Gamble ads. And PJ hated that. I mean, everybody should be advertising, tie, cheer, you name it. And this was my account. So I went in with my boss. First visit, he's going to show me how to sell. He goes up to Jack, Italian guy, store owner. Jack, here's what we got. Jack says, I don't want any of that crap. My boss says, No, Jack, here's what you got to do. Jack said, Didn't you hear me? I don't want that crap. My boss says, Look, Jack. Jack grabbed my boss by the back of his jacket, walked into the door, and pushed him out the door. Looked at me, and I said, See you, Jack. And I walked on out. Well, that was the P&G way. And so, what I did from that day on, I went to Jack's store every Monday and every Friday, first thing. I went to the soap department, and I faced up the entire aisle, not just my product, but my competitors' products. If something was priced wrong, I corrected it. Not just my product, but my competitor's product. If it was damaged, I would write up not my product, but my competitor's product. If there was a display that had Lever Brothers on it, I filled up the Lever Brothers display with their product. I was demonstrating to him that I cared about him and his store. Finally, after about three weeks, Jack walked up to me and says, what the F do you want? Bang. I hooked on my organizer. He signed it. I sold two truckloads that day. He gave me the order book. I ordered everything. Salesman of the year for the entire East Coast, eight months on the job. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Right, right. Life went off. Yeah, bang. <laughs> Corporate American can teach you a lot of good stuff. Suck it up. Go get it and learn it. But you got to be you. Okay, You got to be something you have to maintain consistency with your values and what you want to be. And once I decided to take their tools and apply them, as Carlton does from Gary, Indiana, Harvey you name it, took off. Every job I had after that, I went into every job with that perspective. and every job, I was extremely successful. They hated to see me go, but in two years, I was gone going somewhere else because this formula was just taking me to a whole other level. So I would have to say that was the experience that really focused me in on what I needed to do in order to be not just successful but happy with my life. Mm-hmm. As we talk about going forward, my whole life has been a process that I've capitalized in something called four G's. Four 4G G's stands for God, goals, guidance, and guts. And what I do is I teach young boys how to change their lives based on God, having faith in God. As how many black people have faith in God? Everybody raise their hands. Having faith in yourself. Who has faith in yourself? Everybody raise their hands. And faith in your fellow man. Who has faith in your fellow man? One or two hands go up. Okay, we got something to work on. Goals. Establish goals, even daily goals. Figure out how to quantify. it. We work with young boys who do this. Guidance. You don't have all the answers. They say, yeah, we, no, you don't. No, you don't. You have to find individuals that you have confidence in and trust and help them help you figure out how to accomplish your goals and guts. You got to pay the cost to be the boss. You got to put it out. You got to work. I can teach this to young boys in 10 minutes and transform their lives in the space of a few weeks. So my goal now is to codify that into a game plan and a model that I can now translate to the boys starting out in Gary in Chicago, but basically nationwide. It's a formula that works extremely well And that's my mission in life. I figured that out over the years. Every time I try to vary from it, God snatches me. and says, oh, no, 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 this is what you need to do. He snatched me enough so that I know this is what my mission is in life. So I turned 70 on September 15th. I have been targeting this date for five, six years. So I've resigned as chairman of the board of Gary Alumni Pathways, too. Lisa's going to take my place. I resigned as chairman of Gary uh, Concerned Christian Men. We're negotiating to sell the business. I'm getting out of leadership roles throughout all aspects of my life so I can focus in on doing what I want to do when I want to do it. And a major element of that is taking 4G and making sure that other kids have the opportunity to experience the power of God and the 4Gs.
1: Man. All
3: right.
2: man, this has been like unbelievable. Like, Like, honestly, like just to be able to be in the same virtual room, you know, as you to be able to talk about this. And I'm just looking forward to us being able to continue this relationship, but also being able to pick up where you leave off, you know, to be able to continue your legacy to some degree. So look, you dropped so many gems today. To have someone here to talk about what it's like 50 years ago is truly a blessing. Secrets Village we ain't playing with y'all this season, man. Season five is going to be for real, for real, okay? This is not for play, play, like they tell us, right, Key? Hey, everybody, and this is uh, that part where you all love. It is the receipts. And today, we'll share receipts on Black Corporate Trailblazers.
1: Yeah, so starting out with receipt number one, we're going back to our old standby, the Harvard Business Review. It's been we'll a while. We're wearing so. them out. It's been a while, but we're going to wear them <laughs> out today. And in an HBER article called How 20th Century Black Leaders Envisioned a More Just Capitalism, researchers noted that Black owners and executives of companies had a noticeable pattern in their management philosophies and actions which included a love of community that loomed large and permeated their businesses. Many Black business pioneers built their businesses in ways that supported and strengthened the people around them, their employees, their customers, even their local communities. And these efforts were beneficial to the company's success at the end of the day. Care is often reciprocated, and many successful Black businesses were robustly sustained by the African-American community, which was happy to patronize organizations that cared for its members' well-being. So, you know, this all goes back to like, you do something good for me, take care of me, I'm going to take care of you. That's a big part of capitalism that's missing in our society today.
2: Mm, Absolutely. And uh, receipt number two, back to that uh, HBR article, you referenced KP uh, um, with what we wear them out all the time, we understand. But it also highlighted the work of Maggie Lena Walker, who was born poor, female, and Black in 1864. So she had a whole bunch of things going against her at that point. By her death in 1934, she had become an African-American visionary, a teacher, an entrepreneur, business and civic leader, philanthropic leader, an activist for the rights of African-Americans, women, and especially Black women. Among other accomplishments, Walker was the first African-American woman to start a bank. A bank, Keith. Bank. (laughs) She also founded a newspaper and a department store. As a feminist, Walker challenged the notion that a woman's place was in the home. Well, obviously, she didn't have no no time to be in the home. All of the businesses she was getting started. But again, this is a, a really good receipt talking about the activity you know, and kind of bucking the system and doing something different.
1: Mm-hmm. And we all know about the Black Wall Street in the 20s and the 30s and how a little thing got burned to the ground. Yeah. You know, once we started seeing success and that's what this article is about. So one more from the article, but it, <laughs> but it is so good. They also talked about Charles Clinton Spaulding, who was known as the father of African-American management and has been recognized as one of the greatest American business leaders of the 20th century. And under his management, From 1900 to 1952, the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company on Durham's Black Wall Street grew into the largest Black-owned business in the country. The firm supported many Black-owned businesses and other worthy causes, and its eventual subsidiaries were also Black-operated. They were largely responsible for promoting economic development via employment opportunities for both men and women, as well as promoting talent development via training, training, leading to progress in economic and social standing and ultimately supporting the growth of a black middle class. And I remember having grown up in North Carolina, remember North Carolina Mutual because they insured my grandmother when she bought her home and when she needed a life insurance policy, that mm-hmm. insurance man would show up at the beginning of every month, you know, just to check in. You know, he was collecting his money, but it was also just checking in. Right. How you doing? Everything okay.
2: And look, I mean, I think this is like key because I'm glad you brought that receipt up because this is stuff that we don't even know. Like, it's people who who are in our age range who don't know much about Black Wall Street or even the Durham's version of Black Wall Street. You know, the blueprint has been set. The secret here, you know, in all of this is people really don't want you to know this type of history.
1: No, no, not at all. (laughs) all.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Look, and the final receipt, receipt number four here, and no recognition of Black corporate trailblazers would be complete without mentioning Ursula Burns. I mean, that sister right there was really doing it. Ursula Burns was raised by a single mother in New York City's Burke Houses, a public housing development. After attending high school, Burns earned a Bachelor of Science degree in mechanical engineering. That's no small feat right there. During this time, she took a summer internship at Xerox, joining them full time after earning a master's in mechanical engineering from Columbia University, again, Ivy League school here in 81. After a a storied career at Xerox, Burns was made CEO of Xerox in 2009, making her the first African-American woman to be named CEO of a major American corporation. Burns ended her tenure at Xerox in 2017, leaving her position as chairperson, you know, as well. Later uh, that year, Burns was elected chairman of Vion, a multinational telecommunications services company. After a sudden departure of the CEO in 2018, Burns was then made executive chairman pending a selection process and later formally appointed as CEO. So again, we're talking about purple unicorns there.
1: She started it. She started it. She started, <laughs> yeah. she black started it. Man. That's right. And Ursula, if you're listening, we need you on the podcast.
2: <laughs> yeah, come on now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and let's talk a little bit about secrets. We're doing a little bit different today. Throughout our discussion with Carlton, he was dropping some serious wisdom. So- we just figured instead of having Carlton Palmer on, we were just going to pull four of those gems that he shared and highlight them as secrets for this section today on how to kind of believe in yourself and follow your passion. And that first secret that he dropped on us was focus on what you're good at and then enjoy what you're doing, right? So he was really, and that's about the intentionality that we talk about all the time. It's like find what you're passionate about, and do it the best that you can, right? Because if you know what you're passionate about, you're going to be successful, a lot more successful than be sitting in a job at a desk and miserable because you hate what you're doing. Yeah, and part of what he was saying also is
2: like, he recognized if he was somewhere that he wasn't going to be, he wasn't passionate about it or wasn't going to showcase his strengths, he was out. He was out. He wasn't wasting (laughs) no time. He was not wasting time. (laughs) No, I appreciate that. And I think secret number two that I like to focus on is when he mentioned... Get their attention and then produce again. We're talking about being able to advocate for yourself, being able to get to the front, you know, of the line. But when you get there, know what you're going to do, know your job, produce. Like Keith always says, you got to put some points on the board, and that's exactly what brother Carlton was talking about when he was talking about uh, get their attention and, and then produce.
1: Yep, absolutely. And the third secret, you know, we've heard this many times growing up in our community. Each one, teach one. Mm -hmm. And Carlton said, he expanded it to say, teach many, you know, because he wanted to do it at scale at the end of the day. And it's all about, you know, teaching as many as you can. That's how we started Secrets, because that was really our philosophy. How could we get our message out at scale, right? Because it wasn't good enough for us to have 20-minute one-on-ones. We just ran out of capacity to do that. So this is a way for us doing this at scale and following that philosophy.
2: Each one, teach one each one teach many, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Like we appreciate that. And the final secret, you know, of many that Carlton uh, dropped, but we'll talk about the four G's, God, goals, guidance, and guts. Again, you have to be able to have some type of a spiritual foundation to make this work. You got to be able to set some goals, you know, for yourself so that you can have something to try to achieve. And then finally, you just got to have some guidance. I mean, We talk about the things that Keith and I do, and it seems like we're just having fun and this, that, and the other. We have a plan, you know, and we use outlines. We use personal um, accountability plans to keep us, you know, intact. And then finally, those guts, you got to have courage to be able to do the things that other people are scared to do. Yeah, You know, and I think, you know, this brother Carlton just really showed us, you know, how to do that today's episode was just so incredibly special. I mean, we were talking to just a trailblazer today and Brother Carlton really laid it on us, man. Like, I'm excited. I am waiting for my trip to the- uh, Oh my yeah, that emergency. family, that, yeah, dad, yeah, yeah. that <laughs> of thing. We got to yeah, yeah. get there. That's right. <laughs> we coming. Like, don't invite Ricky and Keith to that because we showing up, you know, and to have someone here to talk about what it was like 50 years ago is just truly a blessing. So Secrets Village, I'm telling you, man, season five is the real deal. We are not messing around with
1: y'all. I'm messing around. And you can find more resources on what we talked about today, the receipts, by going to our website at secrets.com and looking in the show notes for this episode. There's a lot of good information in there.
2: Yeah. And look, you know, listeners, our Secrets Village, you know, everyone. We just continue to grow, and 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 we we owe it all to you. So just help your brothers out by writing reviews on Apple, Spotify, joining our LinkedIn group. I know we say it every time, but it really, really matters. The support is important for us, and just commenting on our posts. I mean, just you know, last month when we were talking about Brother Keith's birthday over here, we had almost four thousand people respond, you know, to that, which is huge. So I appreciate trust you. me. That's right. <laughs> Trust me. LinkedIn is paying attention and other social media forms of paying attention. So again, those comments also help you become like a thought leader. And that is really, really important to trying to get you to the next level.
1: Mm-hmm. And check out that merch. We're going to be updating some designs here shortly and get some new stuff out there. But if you ain't got that hot fire design, go get it. It's nice. And y'all already know that PR and I are all about Helping y'all get that step level change that you need in your life, and so and get some coin in your pocket. We're tipping the scales now at probably close to five million dollars in additional total comp increases that we've helped people achieve by talking to us and working with us. So hit us up for personal coaching. You know, if you need us to come to your organization and do training, we are here and we appreciate y'all because people are starting to refer people to us now, and that's <laughs> starting to really take off. So keep those referrals coming because. We're trying to grow the village and help everybody get what they worth. Absolutely, get that coin before we sign off. We
2: we just really want to thank Carlton once again for being with us today. Big Red is a Toyota, <laughs> okay, <laughs> but now I may feel more comfortable getting one of them big Fords, knowing that a brother has been building that chassis there. You know what I mean? Yes, like had yes, yes, I done that before, I probably would have done that. You that's know what right. you So, look, KP and I are a little uh, parched over here, so it's time for us to fill up these empty cups that we have over here and create some more hot fire for y'all. So, until the next time, everyone, just remember, thanks so much for listening to Secrets, and remember, when we share, you transform.
1: Peace, everybody.
2: Out.
0: thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed yet another episode of secrets in fact one listener said that with secrets i learn new actionable information listening to kp and pr i enjoy the balance of data with the testimony of real experience and we hope you agree If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please show these brothers some love. Subscribe and write a review on our podcast. And last but certainly not least, elevate your professional game by signing up for our executive coaching services. Check us out at www.secrets.com to get more information about our secret services. Remember, when we share, you transform. Until next time, cheers.